join us in the dustiest corners of the video store, the back row of the grindhouse, the furthest regions of celluloid. This is Video Store Nightmares. Hello everyone, welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the delinquent films of the VHS era. Tonight we're talking about the 1996 Matthew Bright written and directed pseudo-mainstream exploitation classic, Freeway. My name is Luke and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, you can find 1996's Freeway on YouTube in all of its low-def glory. Or you can watch it on Tubi, which uh, looks like it's an HD remaster, for free. So let's start with Matthew Bright. So we talked about Matthew Bright when we did Forbidden Zone because he was childhood friends with Danny Elfman and went on to be in the Mystic Knights of Oinga Boinga. He plays uh, Squeeze It and Renee Henderson in Forbidden Zone and also co-wrote that movie. But this was the first time he had directed a movie. Was this the kind of movie you would expect to get from him? This movie does give me some some Forbidden Zone vibes, and I think it's mostly about how it handles some pretty gnarly content with what feels like a, a strange tone, like a non-serious yet weighty tone. It's really hard to to nail down. It is. The tone of this movie is really strange, but I just watched the second one for the first time. And so I was comparing the tone of the two. This one is more comedic than that one. But I don't know how much of that is due to the writing and directing and how much of it is due to Reese Witherspoon. And I think a unique ability to portray this kind of character in a likable way. I'm assuming the sequel has all original characters. No. Yeah, it's a totally unrelated story. Okay. What's the budget on that one? I'm assuming that one did not come out in theaters. No, straight to video. I think it was lower budget, but it seems about the same as this one, like in terms of visuals and filmmaking and all of that. It stars Natasha Leone in what would be essentially the Reese Witherspoon part. Um, and I, I find her kind of irritating, so that might play into it but i just found all the characters in the second one really unlikable and i think the only reason this movie gets away with what it does is because the characters are likable or at least our main character is vanessa i mean that's the central theme right you have this girl who is otherwise uh you know a good person who's just gotten wrapped up in the wrong people with the wrong people and more importantly in the worst possible situation imaginable she just has terrible luck did not get bored into the right family and yet everything in society is going against her yeah if there's if there's a a thing that i think both movies do really well it's they create a situation where you might morally ethically 
in terms of good taste, disagree with everything that this main character does. But in the situation, in the context, it's almost like, yep, that's what I would do. It almost makes a good case for the rationalizing the actions of the poor. Yeah, I mean, you have a very lower class, illiterate, <laughs> um, emotionally uncontrollable main character, and they actually succeed in making you empathize with her, even if she's not having the best, um, like the best response to every situation. But you're right, it's all rational. Yeah, you can see she is doing remarkably well with the with the the tools that she has right and she's making smart decisions far smarter than most of the women we see in these kinds of movies but albeit very limited by her circumstances her education her um, financial resources her social connections like all of that is extremely limited obviously but she's she's being as rational as possible within that context but we should back up and say, so our main character is Reese Witherspoon, and this is basically based on Little Red Riding Hood, with her being in a sort of criminal environment, a criminal home, and running away only to encounter the I-5 killer, this serial killer who's killing prostitutes on the highway, and he is played by Kiefer Sutherland. And the police are chasing after uh, eventually both of them. Eventually they come to believe her, but spoilers. Well, hopefully you've seen, hopefully you've seen these movies if you're coming to listen to the podcast, but, but if, but if you haven't sure, this one is worth your time. So we, we talked about the tone a moment ago. Do you think this is a comedy? Like, what is this? You know, it wasn't long ago when we watched touch of death, which was a film that couldn't decide whether it wanted to be a comedy or a gore fest, despite the fact that you have egregious subject matter compared, uh, you know, contrasted against like dark humor here. It doesn't feel this, you know, it doesn't feel the same. It feels like a good mix with this film. They managed to strike a balance. And I think it's because despite the horrible situations you have in this film, the absolutely traumatic shit that Reese Witherspoon's character goes through the entire runtime. This film actually isn't very graphic. All, all of the content is, that's rough and traumatic is suggested. There's no nudity. The gore is limited. We don't see anybody sexually battered, despite the fact that everyone in this film is almost a, is basically a scumbag. One of the things about the second movie is that it does it's not held back, right? Like there's a lot more violence and blood and nudity. And like you see multiple male in characters nude in that film. Uh, and apparently it came very, very close to getting an NC-17 rating. Um, he had to cut it significantly. But some people I read chalked that up to him being less restrained by producers, whereas this is his first movie. He's going to have a lot of limitations and controls put on him, I imagine. And so he probably couldn't go as wild as he wanted to. But that might have worked out to the movie's advantage. 
I also don't think it would be possible without the actors, though. I think th- this movie works tonally solely because the actors can pull it off. A lot of this movie is just dialogue exchange between great acting performances, specifically Reese Witherspoon and Keith Sutherland, like especially in the um, hitchhiking rides that are in like the first quarter of the film. Are you like a Reese Witherspoon fan? I wouldn't say I'm like a fan, but I am struggling to think of a role I, you know, loathe to see her in. But I also don't think I watch many Reese Witherspoon movies, right? This just happens to be like a really huge, like, uh, outlier in her catalog. She's normally in stuff that's much more traditional. So, like, in the 90s, she has a string of movies that I just love, and I love her in them. This movie, a couple years later, she made Pleasantville, which I think is an unrecognized masterpiece of film that, like, is just not given the respect it deserves. And then a year after that, she was in Election, which I think is her best performance and a masterful, like, black comedy satire and then she was in american psycho the next year and then after that her i guess post legally blonde her career just goes into a lot of like romantic comedies and mainstream like drama films and just not stuff that i tend to be attracted to so i i think that in the movies I've seen her in, she's a really interesting performer, and I really like her characters, uh, but not so much. I guess I just kind of lost track of her. I do not remember her in Pleasantville because I probably saw that like 20 years ago. <laughs> um, she's the main She's the main female. Main female? You sound like a Ferengi. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I sound like a what? Ferengi from like Star Trek. Oh, that means nothing to me yeah all right anyway so do you think you think she's good in this movie yeah absolutely i think i i think a lot of this movie's effectiveness hinges on her and sutherland's performance there's no way to get around that yeah no i totally agree there is something i don't know how to put this into words like even though I find her really entertaining and likable in this role and really funny and sympathetic, I never really believe that she's actually that character. Like actually that character or actually that age? Because she's clearly an adult playing the role of like someone who's what at minimum 16 years of age. She's supposed to be 15. Oh gosh. Right. Okay. But and maybe that's part of it. Is like, I just don't, I have, it, it might be partly the age thing, but I have trouble buying her as actually being an illiterate, lower class um, person with criminal uh, proclivities. It, it just, it doesn't, it seems like a flashy performance to me more than she's actually like embodying the character. No, I can totally believe that she's in this situation, but it is hard to believe she's illiterate when she starts using words like anatomy and um But see, I think that's really funny. And that I um I think it's really funny the the words that she does choose to use. And I think this is very realistic actually because I interact with a lot of young people and a lot of people who are not well educated or who aren't very academic 
when they do learn, you know, quote unquote, advanced vocabulary words, they'll cling to that. Like they'll, they'll show it off because that's a, a new word they've learned. And like, they're not reading new words every day the way some people are. And so they get like attached to it and then they start weaving that into their speech. And that's kind of how I imagine she is that she, these are just a few words that she's clung on to. Another movie that does that is B the Bill and Ted movies. They're always saying things like, like most audacious. And it's like, what, what person who speaks like Bill and Ted uses the word audacious? I mean, and now they do, but before Bill and Ted, they didn't. It's just, it, it makes the characters work, I think. One other thing we should talk about is Danny Elfman, who did the score, but I, I really only, it, it's only used sparingly in the film, but it's used over the opening and closing credits. He and Matthew Bright were childhood friends, which explains why he would be attached to this project. But what do you think of the score? You can tell right away, even before you see the credits, that this is going to be a Danny Elfman film, because the main theme that you hear in the beginning and the end just sounds like a full tr metal trash can being rolled down a flight of stairs. I like I like it. Uh, I mean, I normally like Danny Elfman themes, but um, I like this one as well. I wish it was better integrated into the movie because it feels really sort of tacked on to me. Um, it does. I mean, I mean, this movie does clearly have um, probably a lot of favors included because you know this guy was very socially connected from his prior you know filmmaking experience. Right. So you mean he was like calling in favors with people? Yeah. And yeah. these people were like obviously willing to step up to the plate. Yeah, because the cast here is incredible. I mean, we've talked about the major ones, but even down to the small roles, like her mom is Amanda Plummer and the detectives, well, we'll get to, but they're, um, everybody in this movie is like a character actor doing a cameo. And I think they all work. They're, they're all of it's good. I don't know her name, but the social worker was from uh, uh, was it two, two man and a two men and a two and a half men, two and a half men. That's it. Yeah, I know she's been in other stuff, but that's what I really recognize her from. Yeah, I never watched that show, but I've definitely seen her in stuff like I know her Same face. Here. Like I've never watched that show from like episode to episode basis, but I feel like whenever I see like a noteworthy clip, it's yeah. involving her. Well, in my head, she's carrying those two and a half men on her shoulders. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's play the trailer and then we'll get into the rest of it. From executive producer Oliver Stone, meet Vanessa Lutz. The cat drinks milk. I love you so much, Chopper. I love you too, baby. Her dad just doesn't get it. Larry, get your goddamn hands off my anatomy. Her mom is clueless. You don't know nothing about nothing. You don't know a goddamn thing about nothing. And her life is no fairy tale. You having some kind of trouble? This is a story of A, murder. He's a guy that's been killing all them girls on the freeway, Bob. Are you gonna do sex to me now? B, revenge. You accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal savior. <laughs> I want that little monster to pay for this. Right now, we're the best friends you've got. I'm so sure. C, betrayal. You don't believe we're your friends. I believe you're out to ruin me. D, 
survival. Back in the hole, I decided all I need to live with my will. E, all of the above. I had this problem with anger. Put an end in a system that lets dangerous, violent thugs be prosecuted as juveniles. Holy shit. Look who got beat with the ugly stick. Kiefer Sutherland, Reese Witherspoon, Brooke Shields, Amanda Plummer. Freeway. Why are you doing this? I'm pissed off and the whole world owes me. Have you ever seen a trailer with a multiple choice quiz in it? No, but I think 90s trailers were the worst trailers <laughs> of any era. They're so even, bad. Even mid 90s? All those trailers, like, that was the era when every movie sounded like a family comedy. <laughs> right? Like, every trailer, whatever it's for, it sounds like a family comedy. Do I need to go back and watch like a trailer for on like Alien 3 or something and, and look at it as a family comedy? I don't know about that one in particular. That's a weird example. But the tone of the, the you know, the narrator, the guy, whoever it is who does like every trailer. I don't know if it's one guy who does many, many trailers or if they're all mimicking each other's styles. From what I understand, there used to be like three or four guys that were constantly called on by whatever production company handles trailers. But since then, a couple of them have passed away. Um, I don't know what the policy is anymore. Or maybe they just go to acting agencies and just try to get people that sound like them. Well, it's uh, the the guy who did them during the 90s predominantly. Um, he just always sounds like he's he's very happy and wants to tell me about a funny story that happened to him yesterday. It's very odd to me. And it's what it's like a trailer for Heat, and it's like the shootout after the bank robbery where like pedestrians are getting hit in crossfire. I don't. I bet we could go make uh you know a montage, a collage of of '90s film trailers with inappropriate tones. But for now. Let's focus on Freeway. So I should preface this by saying this is my wife's all-time favorite movie. And she considers Reese Witherspoon in this movie like a personal hero and very much identifies with her and like the way she grew up. And that, I don't know to what degree that skews my, my feeling of the movie, but I have her yelling Freeway quotes at me all the time. So... But we have seen this film be way before you met her. You do remember seeing it? I definitely have watched this probably early high school. But the thing is, I barely remember any of it. Like, I remember Keith or Sutherland being busted up. And that's probably about it. I have to say that if you do not have a lot of life experience under your belt, this movie will probably go way over your head. Like there are a lot of lines, one like one liners that wouldn't have meant shit to me when I was like 14 or whatever that nowadays I was like, oh, that's 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 writing. <laughs> like I want to say like right off the bat, but the first thing that comes to my mind is um, at the very beginning of the film when we are introduced to the stepdad and he's like, 
you know, you, sh you shouldn't talk to your family that way. Your mom and I waited in a line for rent vouchers all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and the, right after that, she, she says to her stepdad, like, you don't mind my mom bringing home all these strange men because her mom is out on the road turning tricks and the stepdad is like well i make her use mouthwash afterwards the, the, you like that minty <laughs> <laughs> don't you <laughs> one thing the whole cast does well is these one-liners like roll off their tongues and they they do the david mamet thing where it's like in rapid succession and so it, like seeing this movie more than once is uh, is rewarding because you catch the dialogue even better. It's like it it sounds natural, so it's easy to miss how clever it is. I guess is my point. On that note, though, the audio balancing in this film is not the best. Yeah, it's really bad. Yeah, I don't know what happened here. I don't know who to blame, who we need to throw under the bus. But uh, if you are watching this film, you will need to turn your volume up way higher than you would uh, anticipate to understand the dialogue in this film. Well, I want to talk about something else in this scene. Uh, when this conversation is happening and her stepdad is smoking meth and trying to feel her up. And meanwhile... You said that so casually. Well, you kind of have to in this movie. Yeah. It, it has a very casual air about everything. It feels very, like, lived in and real, but it's not... Maybe this is its purpose. It's almost like a satire of a Hollywood melodrama where ordinarily a situation like that, like a stepdad feeling up his stepdaughter while high on meth, that would be the whole plot of a Lifetime Network movie. As opposed to in this movie, where it's just treated as a throwaway, absurd moment. I mean, it really is a footnote on her fucking odyssey for the next hour, 40 minutes. But what I wanted to say is while this is going on, there's a, a advertisement on the TV. Are you talking about the pet food commercial? Yeah, with the song, My Dog's Better Than Your Dog. Anatomy. So I guess this is a this was a real song, um, but I think it was used in like the fifties and sixties, not when this movie would have taken place. No, I mean the credits for this movie have um, some interesting shit at the end, like the special thanks and all that, and it specifically mentions this <laughs> uh, thanking the Heinz Corporation or whoever for um, letting them use this this commercial. Well, it's really catchy. It sticks in my head for days after I hear it. And if it does yours as well, then you're welcome, listeners. That's why we played it. When the when the police finally pull the the stepdad off of the daughter, off of Vanessa, and they're like, "How could you with your own daughter?" He says, "She ain't my real daughter." Not that we were doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so what do you think about the family dynamic here what is there to say it's intentionally super trashy <laughs> do you think it's meant to be super trashy or or meant to be believable is this movie believable 
Hmm. I mean, there are some very real things going on in this film, but overall, I don't think believability is really the highest uh, priority for the filmmaker or the viewer here. I will say that the most believable thing in this film is all the psychological manipulation that goes on, um, both on the half of law enforcement and um, Keith or Sutherland, which, you know, two completely different sides of, you know, the same coin. It's interesting to see how they use the very same techniques to, to try to get what they want. Yeah. So let's talk about the police officers for a moment who are investigating basically what happens is she ends up shooting Kiefer Sutherland's character once she realizes he's the serial killer. Um, but the police are investigating that because for all they know, she was just homicidal. Uh, here she is like this, uh, Kiefer Sutherland calls her a garbage person. She's one of the garbage people. So we've got these two investigators. Let's talk about them. One of them is played by... Wolfgang Bodasun. This is Detective Breer, who is the black man. Did you know this guy from other stuff? I don't think so. What else has he been in? He's always like a small character actor. Uh, he was in Misery, A Few Good Men. I have seen both of those, and I do not remember him. He was in the Highlander TV series. He was on ER. Nah. Anyway, I think this character is probably the weirdest thing in the movie. The weirdest? I don't know about that. W one thing I'm not sure of is whether or not the portrayal of both of these officers and the court, how they're treating um, Reese Witherspoon's character. What is her character's name? Vanessa. Vanessa Lutz. So how they're treating how they're treating Vanessa I'm not sure if there's actually trying to make some sort of serious critique on like the systemic problems of the criminal justice system, how it's more punitive and less restorative than it should be, or if this is really just supposed to be pure exploitation, like running, running Vanessa through the fucking ringer. I actually don't think it's either of those. I think it's, I think it's that we are meant to to see the world from Vanessa's point of view, and Vanessa says over and over again that all cops are pigs and all pigs are perverts, and so this guy, Detective Breer, is like the incarnation of her worst suspicions about cops. That's kind of how I saw it. So if you haven't seen this film, this dude's issue is that he clearly gets off on criminal dockets. Like he loves to hear about prior history crimes committed from the people he's interrogating. This isn't stated outright, but it's completely obvious what's going on here. It's when so obvious. The opening scene where him and his partner are interrogating Vanessa. Yeah, he like... He's like, and you committed arson, huh? <laughs> <laughs> How many yeah, times did you shoplift? <laughs> it, it's, it's very weirdly sexual, and I wonder if that was a decision on this actor's part, or if it was written into the script, or if the director told him to do it. But... Yeah, it's 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 really funny to me, but it's also really gross and strange. 
it would have been really easy though to just leave his character at that you know one more fucked up footnote in this like long saga of you know victimization but later on he is the officer or the detective that decides to go back to the initial crime scene and ultimately recovers the evidence that proves vanessa was in the right in the long run so he's not completely like shut out and by the script no but the the moment he and i'm not sure what this means but the moment he seems to like the light bulb flicks and he gets the idea and he seems to start caring about vanessa is when he realizes that she had a black boyfriend was that like supposed to be significant or am i just reading into it no i think there is something there and i'm not sure what this movie is trying to say does they actually he calls her something yeah i hadn't heard the term before a, was it a coal burn a coal burner a coal burner oh yeah. i heard it like a okay it, it, this is a testament to the fucking sound quality of this film uh coal burner um is that is it okay to say that <laughs> I don't know. I was wondering the same thing when I was watching the movie. I'd, I've never heard this term in real life, but maybe it was big in the 90s and I was just too young to pay attention. I don't know. Let's talk about the other detective. Uh, this is Detective Wallace. He's played by Dan Hedaya, who I, I know from a ton of shit. Oh, yeah. This guy, everyone recognizes him, but no one knows his name. Uh, no, I, I had not known his name before, but I always think of him from two things in particular. Uh, what do you first think of him from? Do you have like a movie where you're like, oh, that's the guy from such and such? I don't know. <laughs> I'm struggling to think of anything he's been in because they're no, as far as I remember, none of them are like serious roles, right? Like serious like, plots. So the, the two I always think of are he's the, he plays Nixon in Dick the i haven't seen that no it's actually really funny is in he makes a great nixon and then i also think of him as he's one of the mafia guys in mulholland drive that gets upset about the cappuccino yes okay yeah so those are the those are the two things i always think of him from but he's so from so many uh what did you think about him in this movie like every other role he's great well yeah almost every other role his character is more sympathetic to Vanessa from the beginning. But he's not completely out of the clear because in that scene we were just talking about where his partner goes in on questioning Vanessa's criminal history, he doesn't really try to stop it. He just gets uh, annoyed with it. Like, oh, really? We got to do this right now? Yeah, and, and he kind of treats Vanessa that way too. But let's talk about what got like what her her legal offenses are to begin with. So when her her parents get hauled away, she's she's going to have to go to social services. And instead, she handcuffs this, though. It's her parole officer, right? Who shows up? No, it's a social worker. Well, she it, Vanessa calls her her parole officer when she's talking to um, her boyfriend after this scene. But I thought she was a like a social worker. You know, it's possible she doesn't know the difference. That is totally possible. Yeah. Either uh, we're missing something here or she just doesn't know, which I think is pretty likely. 
so I love this scene because he's she's uh, cuffing the woman's ankle to the bed and she starts to run away and she's clearly like laughing under her breath and she says, I'm not laughing, I promise. <laughs> she also has this speech about um, how she's going to go see her grandmother, but her grandmother don't know about her yet. You're putting me in foster care again, aren't you? Honey, I'm willing to consider any alternative you'd like to suggest, but... I don't know. What... My grandma be an alternative. This is the first I've heard of any grandma. Yeah, on my father's side. My real father. See? And she'd take me in, most likely. You don't sound too sure. Actually, she don't know about me yet. That's not going to do us much good for tonight. Why haven't you been in touch with her before now? Because before I was born, there was this bad blood between her and my mom. And there must have been some harsh words spoke because my mom was supposed to have thrown this chemical in her face that burned her skin a little bit. Lovely. I tried getting her on the phone once, but she ain't listed. If I can just get up to that Stockton place, I know I'd find her. Just like that, huh? Yeah. Vanessa, Vanessa. I missed it the first time I watched this scene, but when they both go into her bedroom, the social worker looks around and is like, oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Yeah, the, the settings are great. They're very they're very real. But I mean, on the one hand, it's absurd and ridiculous and funny, this whole this dialogue. But on the other, this is exactly how 15 year olds think like. Yeah, my grandmother, who's never seen or met me or even knows I exist, will totally let me stay with her. The movie leads you to believe that the grandmother will at least be some sort of bastion of safety. I mean, we just don't know, uh, but we know from the opening credits that this is uh, a Little Red Riding Hood adaptation. And so we have, I think, the instinct that something bad will happen. So on her way hitchhiking to go see grandma she meets Kiefer Sutherland who introduces himself as a guidance counselor a school guidance counselor do you think he's really a guidance counselor mm, I'd imagine not because they have a really nice house on the one hand yeah it seems like they have a lot of money and I don't really believe anything he says but on the other he kind of acts like a guidance counselor and dresses like a guidance counselor that sounds like slander. Against him or guidance counselors? Uh, <laughs> use your best judgment. <laughs> but I, I would say it, Keith or Sutherland's character, his role in the script is to just be the position of the upper class that is seemingly immune to the uh, consequences of law enforcement, right? So he's white, he's wealthy, he's a male. And in a court of law, as you saw, um, as you can see in this film, they immediately take his side over Reese Witherspoon's um, because she is lower class. She has a criminal record. Um, she has been arrested before, um, is lying, has emotional problems that are documented, anger management, ma anger management issues that are documented. And on top of all that, she ended up making the bad decision to rob him after shooting him. Yeah. So let's let's talk about before she shoots him, this this whole scene, because this is probably the most pivotal part of the movie. I think it's the best part of the film. So the interaction is set up. What what do you think so good about it? 
this whole mind game, like if you are anyone again that has experience like life experience like it, you know exactly what's going on here that she is being groomed from the start or at the very least that this guy is prepping her for some like major mental trauma later on maybe it's obvious right maybe it's it's really obvious but i i still think that there's a lot of shit in this film Maybe there's a lot of maybe in a lot of these films that we cover that will kind of go over your head if you don't have like the the a real frame of reference for it. This is probably a, a true blanket statement of just some of the shit that's going on that it doesn't it would not have the appropriate amount of weight. And I I think that this whole psychological mind game that the i5 killer has with witherspoon's character in this car i think it's amplified if you know what's going to happen if you sense the the predatory instinct of what's what's going to happen yeah i mean did you assume he was the killer from the beginning yeah i mean i don't see how you couldn't right yeah like he okay so he doesn't look like right off the bat like your your stereotypical hollywood serial killer but he looks like what actual serial killers looked like poor right glasses with you know unsuspecting fucking suits and all that you know not everybody is a, a fucking clown wielding a butcher knife with blood on it so we could spend the whole episode on this conversation but let's let's get a little bit of it this whole um, movie is a is a landmine a, la a minefield for getting stuck on just insignificant details did you think this was really funny this whole conversation no i don't think i laughed at all oh we definitely laughed i watched it with my wife and i mean we've watched it a dozen a time uh, together before but there's a lot of this that's really funny to me, and I'm not sure why it's so funny, because you're right, it's really horrifying and disturbing. Oh, actually, no, I, I, I lied. Once the, the, the sheep's clothing is gone, and she starts saying shit like, you know, are you going to do sex to me? Like, <laughs> that, that shit was funny. Because <laughs> of the delivery. And well, when she, like, gets him at gunpoint and, like, makes him <laughs> ask him if he's accepted Christ into his heart or whatever. No, what is it? Accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, you know, that, that stuff's all funny. Um, but everything no, leading up to it, no, not at all. Where I started laughing was when she shows him a picture of her father, which I don't know if you notice is noticed, but it's a picture of Richard Speck, the serial killer. And oh, um Oh no, no, I didn't and Kiefer Sutherland kind of gives it a weird look and then says, well, he looks very interesting. And, uh, and Vanessa takes this as an immediate compliment. She's like, oh, thank you. So I thought that was really funny. And then she's talking about that, this that whole that whole family photo thing is a running gag in this film. Like, you know, she shows a photo of her grandma in the one clip we played earlier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when Sutherland is eventually um like <laughs> incapacitated on a hospital bed about in an in an emergency room the police detective is like is this the girl who shot you and it's just this really weird school photo looking background with her looking off camera blowing a raspberry <laughs> 
Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but this should be really serious, right? Vanessa's talking about how she was in this foster home situation where this old man was abusing her. And she says he had this disease that causes your brain cells to flow out through your pee. <laughs> do you know do you know what this is she's referring to i imagined it was just supposed to be i mean clearly this doesn't exist but like maybe it was dementia well she Some said sort of senility she says uh she says that he he broke her nose and that's why it's so big and she says several he uh it, it, Kiefer Sutherland says, "Oh, Vanessa, it's it's not that big. It's perfectly normal." And she and then says, he "Boops her, boop." Yep. And she says, "It's pretty damn big," but it, she doesn't have a big nose. So I thought this was really funny too. No, you're right. All that stuff is fine, but I'm talking about like when they're in the car. Yeah, when he wants her to describe how it felt to give her stepfather blowjobs when she was a child. That part. Yes. This conversation seems very real to me. It seems disturbingly real. The the way things are described. Like there's a whole tangent where he wants her to admit that she felt like a human urinal. And it's it's so specific a description and on the one hand it's kind of juvenile because she says she didn't really understand what was happening on the other it's like fetishistic and it, it seems like something that didn't it wasn't just dreamt up by my matthew bright that it, it has some basis in reality i don't know i'm rambling does that make sense yeah no and there are actually audio recordings and and transcribed interviews with serial killers and such that describe exactly how they would talk to their victims before like up and coming to the moments and you know for the guys that really got off on psychological manipulation you we could find maybe not that exact line of dialogue but something probably pretty close you should also keep in mind that shit like this would only work on someone that is naive and too like too young and naive to understand what is going on or already traumatized like a grown ass uh a woman would would have like caught on to this shit way sooner but and that's what makes me think that he really is a guidance counselor because he clearly knows how to manipulate a kid the only way that works is if his wife is the breadwinner because this house is two stories in California, pristine white, designer furniture, art on the walls. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess maybe you just got to throw out the, the believability there. Well, his wife is Brooke Shields, by the way, and she has no idea that he's a pedophile or the I-5 killer and is devastated when she finds out, mainly, I think, because of the loss in social standing that she will suffer. That's the implication. But, you know, unlike real life, she stands by her man, you know, most of the time when you got like a spouse with a severe illness, you know, it's not uncommon to see... Uh maybe a gold digger walk away i don't know once she once they find the the 
it's a shed of ch- child porn that's locked up in the backyard. Not I think even, it's not even child porn. <laughs> but she says it is. She says those were uh, children. Oh, well, there there were photographs. I'm assuming right. those were of like prior victims. You don't see them, you know, but you see Polaroids fall. But, yeah. Right. But there's also a shit ton of um, regular pornography that <laughs> spills out of the shed. Yeah. And that that makes her go and shoot herself so she's definitely not standing around anymore well you know what doesn't help is that um before she goes upstairs to do that the one detective the the criminal history fetishist (laughs) uh basically says and that's the girl that you wanted to sit in the gas chamber She's like, who could do this sort of thing to these children? It's like, you wanted to send that child to the gas chamber. Yeah. <laughs> like, maybe that sent her over the edge. It's uh, it's honestly one of the better put downs in the movie because everything about her is superficial and fake. Um, it's, I mean, I hate her character, but it's a well-played role, I guess. I like the interview on the uh, 60 Minutes-esque show that... Uh- yeah vanessa watches from prison where she's like and then my husband can't get aroused anymore (laughs) (laughs) and the interviewer is just like you mean you can't carry on sexual relations anymore (laughs) and what is what does vanessa say while she's watching she like mimics his uh his his new robotic voice she says something like you know you know, I, I can't get up anymore, but I'll never lose my smile. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really good. And I think it's when all the other girls in prison or jail, whatever she's in, start to, um, if not respect her, then fear her. Because that's when she kind of gets them all off her back. So let's talk about her first interview with the poli- with the detectives. What do you, what did you think of the the interview where she was like she didn't she doesn't ask for a lawyer she says she'll talk as long as she gets to call her fiance right afterwards when does she find out that her fiance is dead when she calls after this interview okay but she talks to his mom and and I we don't hear her but I suppose she says that he got shot what do you think the point of all that was to show that he had a legit reason to not be there for her, that he didn't abandon her? Well... Do you think it was just one more sad thing that she had to cope with? I think it's just another part of her reality. Like, that that's just the... That is not out of place in the world that she lives in. It's also where she gets the gun. Yes, that's right. Because he gives her a gun, but he gives it to her to pawn, not to use. But she ends up using it. His death is very unceremonious. As soon as she pulls off, um, assuming a rival gang pulls up next to him and just shoots him on the spot. Maybe if he hadn't given away his gun, he could have fought back. But there's not really much point in discussing that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's supposed to be the irony of it, right? And I also think that his his death is supposed to be unceremonial because I think the movie is showing us that, like, white or black, when you're poor and you are not one of the the socially desirables like people like Keith or Sutherland are going to think you're a garbage person and nobody's really going to care uh if you if you're killed 
no one's gonna miss you i love how vanessa calls out um the the i5 killer on his uh like hypocrisy again you know hypocrisy a word that you really wouldn't expect an illiterate 15 year old to use he even says something like that that's a pretty big word for her and he's he's like please tell me how am i a hypocrite like very sarcastically but then she kind of he he shuts up after that because she's kind of right yeah (laughs) yeah it it's it's funny because her her language is again she's she's weaving in those random like educated words but then she has the grammatically incorrect dialect as well and it's kind of exaggerated so it's really funny to me um but it also it clashes with how rational and intelligent she's being in the individual scenes which is why i think my wife really like sees her as like a hero i'm trying to think if we can somehow compare this to like to like the hero the the hero myth I mean, it follows the it follows Little Red Riding Hood, right? It follows the um, the fairy tale structure, and by the second one does as well. The second one is Hansel and Gretel. Oh, yeah. But during the police interview, uh, when they tell her that he's not dead, she's like, "Oh yeah, right. I shot him so many times," and um, and this is she- like a defense lawyer's nightmare. This entire interview. Right, because she tells him everything, right, and uh, and doesn't sugarcoat anything, and doesn't even know how to be diplomatic in her speech, right? And she's like, "This is gonna sound bad, but it's not as bad as it seems." Like I have this problem with anger, but I don't have that problem no more. And uh, she admits to what it, it being like three counts of arson and. Was it three counts of arson? I think that's what she said. I remember seven counts of shoplifting. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was one count of arson. But well, you know no, you, so you're probably right. You're probably she right. Says, she says that this one, she kind of accidentally burned down a house and she was charged with arson. And then uh-huh. the, the black guy's like, how many times were you charged with arson? And I think she says <laughs> three. <laughs> and his eyes light up. <laughs> I have a slight southern twinge to my voice sometimes and vanessa is making me making it come out so if i sound like i'm from the south i'm not i'm not trying too hard but anything else from this interview we should talk about she she does smack the police officer in the face with a chair yeah she does she does commit battery here And, and that's like again one of the many crimes that she commits in the process of trying to clear her name that realistically would not get thrown out yeah this is one of those movies that kind of pretends that all of the tiny crimes she committed or the medium crimes uh will just be forgiven because you know she was correct at the end yeah totally slashed a police officer from like shoulder to fucking hip but nah it's cool it <laughs> she was under duress right and this is all when she's being evaluated or, or after this, she's being evaluated to see whether she should stand trial as an adult. Do you think in the real world she'd stand trial as an adult? You know, she is still a white woman despite her class or a white girl. I don't think she would be charged as, a, as an adult. I don't either. Not at 15. Now, black male, lower class. 
I think there's historical precedence for, like, say, uh, robbery gone wrong, you know, juvenile shoots, murders somebody, whether it's intentional or not, getting charged as an adult. I think there have been situations where you have a driver who's just involved in the felony but never even touched a firearm that gets charged as an adult because someone that was involved in the actual robbery itself killed someone. Yeah, that's kind of the setup for the second movie as well. Yeah. But after this is where she sees Bob, uh, Kiefer Sutherland, the next time at her arraignment. Holy shit. Look who got beat with the ugly stick. Is that you, Bob? I, I, I can't believe such a teeny wee little gun makes such a big mess out of someone. You out of your mind? <laughs> you are so ugly, Bob. You know it's gonna cramp your style with babe, big time. You know that, huh? Especially little Miss Chris over there. And hey, I heard you have one of those big poop bags that's like attached to your body and all your shit comes out like lands in it. You just a big old shit bag, ain't you, Bob? Oh, you just think of me every time you empty that motherfucking thing, motherfucker! Quiet! Quiet. <laughs> every time you empty that shit bag, I want you to think of me. <laughs> yeah, and all of this is in front of the the judge. When you, when you hear the, are you out of your mind, that is the defense attorney, <laughs> which is probably speaking on behalf of the entire audience. Which is something that I think this movie does cleverly is it gets you to sympathize with Vanessa while clearly demonstrating why every single member of society would judge her as irredeemable. It's like making us sympathize with her, but under the table. Yeah, but I would say that if this film was really trying to, to, to make the average American or viewer like try to sympathize or empathize with like someone in the lower class who commits um, quote unquote necessary crimes, um, is it like a cop out that they used um, like a young, attractive white female? To put in that role to make it easier i mean that's a really good question and i think you ultimately this movie is supposed to be entertainment right so i don't know if it's really trying to make viewers uncomfortable here no i i don't know if it is either i was just trying to think like would this movie work with a black actress and i think that it would but it would take on a whole nother racial dimension that's not here um especially in the mid 90s like, yeah uh you know young black offender and a white victim yeah yeah oh that would have been spicy <laughs> well you do get some degree of racial politics once she ends up in the juvenile detention facility uh, yeah, okay, let's talk about what's probably our least favorite character of the whole film. And it has nothing to do with the racial connotations. It's mostly sound balancing. I actually really like this character, and I like the actress, but she is really hard to hear. Yeah, her character is fine, but she, like, speaks in whispers constantly. And in a movie where the audio is so quiet for the dialogue... I, I mean, I was telling Luke this before we started recording. I think I maybe understood about a third of what she was saying. I did understand when she first walks up to Reese Witherspoon's character and says, 
Hey, Cracker Bunny. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even catch that. Yeah, that's what she calls her. I heard like, bunny. (laughs) No, she's she's like the she's the current like top girl at the juvenile detention facility who is threatened by. I don't think this is juvenile detention, is it? I think it it, it, is just a women's like detention facility because they're mixing nonviolent offenders with someone like uh, Vanessa, who is in there for attempted murder. (laughs) Well, and then there's so we definitely need to talk about Vanessa's bunkmate, Rhonda, who is there for huffing paint. That's what she says anywhere. That's what she says. But they also said that they found the black tar heroin that she was stashing away in her vagina during a strip search. <laughs> so what did you think of Rhonda? Yo, she has, she's pretty messed up, man. Like her brain is fried. She has like the Frankenstein scars going on. <laughs> she's, she's seen some shit. So Rhonda, like, Rhonda's you know i just feel like in a different movie this character would have been more emphasized like more used as for like a buddy buddy like kind of relationship but we really only see her in two scenes which is what i like about this movie that even it's throwaway characters that aren't integral integral to the plot are really interesting and unique and entertaining but Rhonda is played by Brittany Murphy, who, you know, is in tons of things. And um, she's barely recognizable here because, yeah, she has Frankenstein scars all over her face. Um, and she her mannerisms are I mean, on the one hand, they're very believable, I think, for someone with a mental illness. But they're also really. Odd and exaggerated and um, absurd and funny. Like- uh the leveling of like the wrist at like chest height with the finger crumple, you know, you know what we're talking about. And the in the head tilt from side to side and the looking up at the ceiling and yeah, all those standard like ticks. Um, but she is very into Vanessa and she says, I never got how someone could go their whole life never being into girls. <laughs> and Vanessa eventually says that they can make out but no sex. But yeah, I I kind of wish Rondo was in more of the movie because I think she's she's really entertaining. Hey, uh, real quick. Yeah. So, eventually, when we get to the escape scene, right? Okay. And they're in the bathroom, and they bring the uh, I don't know what you want to call her the 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 prison mistress. They bring yeah. the prison mistress into the uh, into the bathroom. Do you think they kill her? Yes. She's super dead. Because we see, what's her name? The the Latina stop girl. Her. Yeah, but... What? Like, we see the Latina woman stop her, but... Yeah, like, pretty bad. I mean, she's going wild on her. Um, I, I got... My impression was that she killed her. Okay. But right before that scene, there's a dream sequence where, uh, where Vanessa gets knocked out, and she dreams of these... Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. It, it's um, a grandma's trailer, but there's like a bunch of, um, <laughs> there's like a bunch of uh, like stuffed animals and statues propped up in front of it. Like Yeah, there's, 
giant giraffes and a weird clown out front. It's very like a, weird. There's like a muscular strongman. You know what it looks like? It looks like a set from Forbidden Zone. Yeah, you got a clown in the background waving. Yeah, it's that same sort of visual style that you saw there. So uh, there's, a, there's a portrait of a sad clown in her parents' house. I don't know if you noticed that or not. I don't think I did. But during this, like, while this is going on, the court is trying to decide whether she needs to be charged as an adult and whether she's, um, cap- like, whether she's a good candidate for rehab. And I kept thinking, like, this is so sad because Vanessa is exactly the person who would benefit from rehab. But because she's so outwardly antagonistic, like, she's going to be given maximum punishments. <laughs> oh, during the escape scene, I really like that Vanessa like slashes the guard with this uh, knife she made out of her toothbrush. And uh, he says, he didn't have to kill me. And she says, I didn't kill you, you stupid fuck. <laughs> and then there's a, there's a whole weird part of the movie where like it's, it's bonding between the two girls. I thought this is the only part of the movie where I was like, I don't know why this is here. Like This is a very strange detour. So it's not uncommon for inmates to make um, improvised shivs out of plastic. Um, so the, the toothbrush is plastic. You wrap it in like cellophane or some other material that whatever you have available and use a lighter or a heat source to melt and cool and melt and cool the plastic and you form it into a a blade. Um, Now, would it be strong enough to slash through a police officer's uniform while he's um, strapped with a bulletproof vest? Probably not. No, I I got that. I mean, I thought it was a little silly, but... But you know, um, in the midnight mandatory bulletproof vest wearing uh, for law enforcement wasn't really in place until the 2000s believe it or not so him not having one is not really outside of the realm of unbelievability yeah that's not surprising but no what i thought was so weird was just the like then 10 minutes that we see her going back to the latina girls neighborhood and getting a gun from her and her making out with her boyfriend and i just it seemed like a weird detour for the movie to take but i really like the scene where vanessa steals this guy's car she's turning tricks on the street in mexico and she can't speak spanish so she's mexico (laughs) this is just like southern california no, no, she crosses over the border for a while. Does she? Yeah, that's what she's going to do. So she then why escapes. is this super white guy over there? I don't know. I imagine he's someone who works on the border and like goes back and forth. But nah, I thought the nah, I thought it, the whole thing with going with whatever her name was was to get to Mexico so they would be outside of the, you know, realm of the law and then she thinks that she can just hide out there, but the police just follow her. Maybe that was said at some point. I can't tell you because, again, I couldn't understand that character's dialogue most of the time. Yeah. But I am positive that at the time of the scene, they are just in Southern California where she then carjacks this guy to continue on the rest of the, the rest of her journey. 
Oh, well, most never any intent to go to Mexico. Most of the people around her in the scene anywhere are Latino, and when she's walking up to cars, she keeps Southern saying, "California." <laughs> she keeps saying, "Hey, sexo," like because <laughs> she can't speak Spanish. I yeah. think it's really funny. But no, you know, there's you know, I don't gotta tell you, there's a huge immigrant population in in California, both um, Hispanic and Asian. Yeah, I was just, just there. In, she's just in that like little, I don't know, you know, little Havana, little Mexico, I'm, whatever. You know, they always have like little and then like the region that everyone's grouping up in. I'm pretty sure she goes into Mexico, though. I'm pretty sure that's said at some point. But anyway, uh, this scene's really funny because she, she he asks uh, the white guy that she gets in the car with asks for a blowjob. And when she pulls the gun on him and takes his cash, he has $5. And she's like, you was just going to give me $5? And she calls him Peckersnot. <laughs> they agree on $25. Out, <laughs> cheaps out on that. A lot of this almost feels like John Waters' dialogue at times. Like, that seems oh. to be one of the influences. Oh, yeah. I mean, now that you... you mention it that's definitely probably the case i think um i think russ meyer is an influence too we did his uh faster pussycat kill kill um i think those are definitely influences on matthew bright would have been the same the right time period too when they were all getting into underground film together but he, she, when she tells him to get in the trunk he says he's claustrophobic and she says well i get claustrophobic sucking strange dick <laughs> <laughs> but i think where reese really shines in this movie is her ability to make lines like that sound believable because in the wrong actors you know words it would come off as really silly or or maybe even like trying too hard but i don't get that sense in this movie agreed all right do you want to go ahead and do final thoughts well maybe we can at least talk about the end right yeah so this all this all um, comes to a head at her grandmother's house, where, just like in Little Red Riding Hood, she finds Bob waiting for her. In grandma's clothing. In her bed, with the cover under the face, uh, or the cover over his face. And um, Vanessa says something like, you strangled my grandma. And he says, I didn't just strangle grandma. And it's really gross. He's a really gross character at this point. Grandma is definitely dead naked, but we don't we don't get to see anything. Like we, oh shucks, we don't get to see anything. That's not what I meant, but you know. We should describe him. He's got like half his jaw just hangs open and like his teeth come out like a like a monster face, basically. His like upper lip is stuck in a snarl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, this is after he's recovered, right? Like, right. As close as he'll ever get to a recovery. Like, he's outside of the neck brace and all that, but his, like, his right eye is fucked up. He's got facial scarring. He has to talk through a metal voice modulator in his throat. Was yeah. he smoking through his, through a, he was smoking earlier in a cafe. Was it through, like, his mouth or the hole? Through the hole, through his tracheotomy. He smoked yeah, cigarettes yeah. through it. Right. And during that diner scene, he's like flirting with the waitress. It's really weird. It's really uncomfortable. I think he's just taking advantage. Well, 
I wouldn't say taking advantage, but he's just sort of like getting comfortable with his new persona in that he's going to have to get his kicks off just like scaring women and children for the rest of his life. Yeah, I think it shows that he really is a sadist, right? What what he values is the fear and the un, the discomfort that he can give somebody. So the physical uh the physical abnormalities aren't really a problem for him. Oh, I mean they are, but he yeah. can also use them to his advantage, right? He can feed off of that feeling of fear or disgust that he inspires. Yes, truly a fine example of the endeavoring human spirit. Indeed, the <laughs> the 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 power of resiliency. But the police are showing up at the same time, and I thought it was really funny. the The black cop, when he gets out of the car, he ha- he puts on these super cool sunglasses and like is obviously trying to look cool, but they they fall off because he like does a crouch and run under the window. I don't know if it was accidental or not, but I thought it was funny. Yeah, I like that they went with it. Yeah. When the when the police burst in and, like, see the scene that's unfolded, they just say, like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, a bunch of times. And they all laugh together. <laughs> <laughs> to set this up, man. <laughs> Keith or Sutherland has... has Vanessa at gunpoint. They're interrupted by a neighbor coming in, bringing an extension cord over, and he just shoots him in the chest. Yep, no hesitation. That dude, all that dude does is he just walks out of the trailer and goes across the street, <laughs> bleeding with this open wound. Yep, it's gushing blood. And I was the like, law I can't. Enforcement completely ignore him. Yep. Yep, he's totally forgotten. It's it's just like in we talked about this in Night Killer when the guy gets shot on or no, it's not Night Killer. We talked about this in Blonde Death where the guy gets shot on the beach and no one even pays attention. But in this case, you know, it's these guys job to protect the public. Well, presumably, apparently the Supreme Court ruled not too long ago that <laughs> the police actually don't have a responsibility to protect the public, but nope. you know, the PR is that they're supposed to protect the public. You got to at least give the impression that you're supposed to. And uh, yeah, that that did not happen. And like you're saying, at the end, when everything resolves then they have like a nice laugh over it, that dude is the farthest thing from their minds. Yep. I mean, bleeding out behind a trailer somewhere. Well, I think other police had shown up, right? No. I don't no? Think so. No, just those two. Uh, well... Another day at the trailer park, right? Grandma's trailer park. <laughs> Can I have a cigarette? <laughs> really, the only thing that was missing was like the 80s freeze frame where like everyone's in mid-laugh. But do you think it's meant to be like like spoofing the kind of movies that end like that? Like, is that what he's going for? I have no clue. I mean, has this movie been spoofing anything else along the way? It kind of feels like its own its own beast. I think that it's, like I said earlier, I think it's trying to be almost a satirical take on the 90s exploitation movie where you've got like this sexually abused woman who manages to overcome an unfair justice system. Like think of a movie like um, um, Double Jeopardy 
something like that. I think it's saying like, all right, we see that and we're just going to do the the grindhouse trash comedy version. I'm not sure if this is supposed to be a parody of those types of films or if it just turned out that way because apparently, you know, this guy might have been restricted in his creativity. You know, based on what you're telling me with the second film, maybe it just comes off that way because we don't get all of that absolute graphic material that showed up in the second one. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's overkill in the second one. The second one does have a much darker tone in general, though. Um, I have not seen any of his other films except he wrote the film Shrunken Heads, which is overtly comedic. So I think that's where his sensibilities lie. I, I mean, based on Forbidden Zone, I'd say the same thing. I think I think there's a guy who likes absurdity, likes anarchism, likes uh, really, really dark humor. Um, so that's, that's kind of where, that's the terms on which I'm trying to take the movie. Anyway, this is a great place for final thoughts and ratings. So you want to go first? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that this movie is sort of like a spiritual successor in in some regards to forbidden zone obviously it's nowhere near as absurd and it doesn't it lacks you know the musical aspects and the the bizarre science fiction fantasy aspects but i feel like there's some sort of descended tone that comes from it and and that's because this guy was involved with all that that whole sect of filmmaking that made films like forbidden zone and uh, like created music with um you know the likes of danny elfman and probably a bunch of other names i can't think of off the top of my head right now um which was really welcome uh, again i saw this film a long time ago and didn't really remember it too well so i'm, I'm glad to have revisited it because i think having a, a lot of um experience under your belt a lot of like yeah having just a lot of life experience under your belt really makes you appreciate this film more i think that that this is a good film to watch nowadays specifically because it does critique a lot of um government institutions like criminal justice education etc and that shit's like very in vogue right now um th there is a good balance here between you know, fucked up traumatic shit and comedic value. I think this movie is really funny. Um, it, it's definitely not supposed to be funny through its entire runtime. There are times where um, it does get pretty dark. And hey, I don't know, maybe if that's your thing, maybe you're gonna laugh at, at all that victimization too. I, I wish the sound balancing was better. It, again, if you watch this film, if you haven't already, you're going to need to crank the volume up on your TV, even on like the HD remasters that you might find. Um, Luke watched on DVD, the same fucking shit happened. Anyway, I'm going to keep this one short. Um, there's a lot of social commentary in here. Uh, I think that the movie probably could have gone a lot harder in on it. But this the fact that this became a mainstream movie that came out in in fucking theaters than the year it did is super impressive because it is not typical of comedies any crime or comedy films that came out at the time 
I mean, yeah, we watch a lot of fucked up shit um, when, on the show, but it's very rarely stuff that comes out in theaters. It's, and this was definitely some sort of mainstream release. I, I think, Luke, that this guy pulled some favors to make this happen. But um, I'm glad he did because uh, this had the... This avoided the production value of, like, straight-to-video hell <laughs> from, like, the mid-90s. And I really appreciate that because getting these, like, th this big-name talent to play the two pivotal characters in the film really paid off. Like, even if this guy didn't get to, uh, you know, realize his ultimate vision of having, like... A, I don't know, children assaulted on screen, naked grandma getting strangled full nude on camera. Like, I don't, I don't think that was really important to the, the, the story here. Although um, that would probably be a more in line with shit we've seen <laughs> in the past. <laughs> it's nice to not have to see that sometimes. Well, I'm glad to have brought you some refreshment. Yes, this is so wholesome. This is very wholesome compared to other things we've seen. <laughs> this is the video store Nightmare Oasis in the desert. <laughs> like you could potentially watch this with a family member and not be completely ashamed just kind of ashamed i mean my wife watched this as a child like this was one of her movies growing up <laughs> so <laughs> anyway um so to keep this short i think this is this is like a it's like a solid three-star film to me I, I don't think it's it's like transcendent but it's a really fun watch <laughs> as a child she watched as a child <laughs> oh yeah this this was like she was not she was she was not nearly as sheltered as i was like she had a much more worldly upbringing um and her life is closer to this movie than mine has ever been uh, i forgot which one it was but i accident uh i was accidentally allowed to watch one of the aliens films when i was like seven and i specifically remember after the movie going up to my mom and being like mom what does fuck mean <laughs> <laughs> and she was like having that awkward parent moment well i do i do remember watching alien was the first like real r-rated horror film i ever watched as a kid and i remember it terrified me as it should yeah i remember thinking to myself as i was watching it like this is why they didn't let me watch it <laughs> but at the same time i still resent not being allowed to watch uh anything i wanted as a kid and it's probably why i, I watch shit like you know this now but anyway this uh yeah i i think i think there's a great film i think it's really interesting and, and tonally interesting like it's really really funny throughout the entire thing i think even during the the scenes where you cringe i was also laughing uh but it's also disturbing in a lot of ways and there are ways in which it's really observant and really interesting and astute and it's sort of reading of what ails poor america um but then at the same time it's got some of the same absurdity and irreverence and uh obscenity that like an early john waters movie has so it's a very weird balance um that i think in the sequel matthew bright doesn't really capture whereas here i think he got the balance just right 
I don't think it would work without the actors. I think across the board, it's fantastic. We didn't really talk about Amanda Plummer, but I think she's great as uh, as Vanessa's mom. The guy who plays the stepdad, I can't remember his name, but he's great too. Um, apparently, he was like a very nice, wholesome person, and everyone was amazed that he was able to transform himself and play that sort of character so believably. Um, every part in this movie is stocked with like good character actors. The pol- the police detectives are really interesting and bizarre, um, and how exaggerated and sort of histrionic they fit the stereotypes that Vanessa has. And Reese Witherspoon really carries this movie. Um, it's a great performance. Uh, my only reservation about the movie is that I don't. It seems like a performance. It it doesn't quite seem like she doesn't seem as comfortable in this role as she would seem in election a couple years later. Right. In that movie, she seems to really embody the character. And this one, it feels a little bit forced. Um, but that's a really minor critique. Uh, I'm going to give it three and a half stars. Election. That's a film I need to rewatch. It's been a long time. Oh, it's so good. And she's so good in it. I think that's uh, one of the peak 90s comedies. All right. So that's it for our adventure into the the mainstream as, as you know, as much as it was. Um, let's consult the Magic 8-Ball and see what we're doing next week. So this is really fitting, but next week we are going to watch a film with another Forbidden Zone alum. We are going to watch Susan Tyrell in the 1981 Night Warning, which is also known as Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Another movie with a a fairy tale connection, I suppose, in its title. Although I much prefer the Night Warning title. I'm not a fan of the Butcher Baker title. Um, but this movie's amazing. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Uh, is it, Will this be a first time watch for you, Leland? I've never even heard of this before. Uh, it's great. Susan Tyrell is amazing in it, as always. One of the first films to, I think, have a a main character be queer and do it in a positive way. It's interesting. But yeah, watch it if you haven't already. Um, Joe Bob did this not too long ago, so some people may have seen it for the first time there, but um, this has always been a great movie and underappreciated. So definitely check it out and join us next week to talk about Night Warning. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares, where I post everything we do. Wherever you're listening, please rate, review, and subscribe, and make sure to come back or go listen to our back episodes if you have not done so. Um, some of the early ones are rough, but uh, <laughs> but uh, That's understatement. But there were there they're still good films, and um, go listen to the Forbidden Zone episode if you haven't. Leland, do you have any last words for this week? Thank you for your continued support. All right. 
Have a good one, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week about Night Warning.